0: Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal
1: clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick.
0: And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is Fred Lapusa, who is the director of the Diocese of Orange's Office for Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry. And Fred is here to talk a little bit in this very important time about restorative justice. So first of all, welcome, Fred. Thank you, Rick. And if you'd be so kind before we do anything else as to lead us in a brief word of prayer, I'm sure we'd all be appreciative.
1: Sure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of life. You who are the giver of all that is good. Uh, please send your spirit down upon our people, upon all those especially who suffer from violence, uh, from oppression, uh, from harm from uh, any of the evils that would separate us from one another, that separate us from you, especially in in mind of what we have going on right now with the pandemic, for those who have died, for those who are sick and ill and suffering, for the family members that are left behind to grieve, for uh, the violence that's been on our streets recently, for the anger, for the injustices, uh, for all these things that you ask us, your leaders and your people, to address, to try to be there to uh, minister and help those who are suffering in all the different ways. We ask you just to send your Holy Spirit down upon us, uh, your spirit of healing and guidance. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, restorative justice is something that I know a little bit about because I have a family member who was involved with it. But prior to getting married and having that family member become a part of my life, I really hadn't heard a whole lot about it formally. Now, I am aware of of Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats where Jesus says, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick and in prison, did you visit me? And um, I, I think we spend a lot of time working with people who will give food and will give uh, clothing and we we'll work with lots of organizations that will give to the poor. But how many of us have visited somebody in prison? And lo and behold, it turns out the Catholic Church has been doing this for quite some time on an organized yes. basis to make sure that that part of what our calling is is not left undone. And that's kind of where you come in, isn't it, Fred? Correct, yes. So tell us, what is restorative justice? Because we're in a time right now where we, we just mm. have had these these protests that have also been turned by some of them into riots which is such a shame and we've seen so much tragedy out of it but what's restorative justice
1: restorative justice is it's it's a concept it's a philosophy but it's also a practice and it's basically anybody who's been harmed it's restoring relationships the focus is more about restoring the relationships that have been broken rather than laws that have been broken. And it has its roots in indigenous uh, philosophies. It was used back in indigenous times. It has its roots in biblical history where people got together in communities and they tried to bring the parties together, uh, the people that caused the harm, the people that were harmed, victims, and uh, try to somehow or another you know, work it out in a way where there's no further harm that's being caused.
0: Jesus created quite a stir in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about mm. the old law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that type of mentality, that the way to restore justice was to to do to the person who did to you what yeah. they did. Yes. And <laughs> what Jesus pointed out was, uh first of all, why are you attached to what was hurt, destroyed, or stolen? Think about that just as a concept. Why are you attached to that? Is that more important than the love between us, between you and your fellow human being? That's the first question. And then number two, um, if love is about willing the good of the other and you're called to love, how do you do that if you're going to try to repay an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth? If you do that, we're all going to be blind, toothless people running around. That's, that's correct. If yes. So it, how does, how does this work? Because I know we also have a number of people who are concerned that the guilty get off too easy sometimes in our society. Yes. And that we don't need to coddle criminals. I'm sure you get that all the time, too. This is, and those are from people's, I know there are some people who are just on the far edge of, of anger, but a lot of people really struggle with those emotions. Yes. How do you answer them? What is a sort of justice you can say to them that speaks to them.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is kind of complicated. It's definitely complicated to answer. Uh, there's a phrase that we use in restorative justice. called It goes, hurt people, hurt people. So in okay. other words, people who have been hurt, hurt other people. Unless the hurt is dealt with, then the behavior normally doesn't stop. And, and just going the punitive route of just locking somebody up normally does not solve that problem. Yeah, it may take them out of society for a while, but when we stop and think that ninety five percent of people who are incarcerated are going to be released again. They're going to be put back out on the streets again. And oftentimes they don't have the provisions even that they need to survive when they get out there, among other things. And the biggest percentage of people that are incarcerated have been traumatized in some way from childhood up. Now I'm not again I'm not saying right. that this is uh justifying that the, that their behavior's okay because of that, but the problem is if we don't get to the root of it you know, so there has to be a holistic approach. If we don't get to the root of what's going on with these folks. Oftentimes that behavior is going to continue and then there's going to be more victimization and these people are going to end up back in the system again. And it's been a revolving door.
0: Okay. I want to, I want to reopen this part of the discussion in a moment. Let's talk about what the diocese actually does. Your office is involved with a, a number of different things, some of which I didn't even realize you're involved with. Give us a brief rundown. What what does your office take care of? What do you touch on? What do you do for the people?
1: Okay, yeah, there's a lot of arms to it. It's kind of difficult even to say in a short amount of time. But uh, on our ba- in its basic sense, um, we have a team of volunteers between 275 and 300 in uh, different in English, Spanish, and Vietnamese, and they go into the all the jail facilities in Orange County, all the juvenile detention facilities in Orange County. And uh, Orangewood Children's Home were kids that are victims in protective custody
0: through social services. Okay, so just to to review that for a moment. So a a good deal of what you do is working with a lot of the kids who are in the system for whatever reason. So those who have committed crimes, those who have had crimes committed on them and need to be taken out of their setting, their home. Correct. And so all of these are hurt people in the system, and you work with all of these kids. Correct. Okay. Correct. Get that down.
1: Different agencies. So we have four different agencies we work with, Sheriff's Department, uh, Orange County Sheriff's Department, uh, Orange County Probation Department, the Santa Ana PD. The Santa Ana uh, City Jail is the largest jail in the county. Wow. And um, we have the um, Orangewood Children's Home run by social services. Four different agencies, and we have volunteers that go in. They have clearance t- to go into these facilities. We do a lot of training and preparation and vetting for our volunteers that come to us. And, um, they go in and, uh, do things like Bible studies, uh, one-to-one pastoral visits, sacramental prep for people that, uh, want to become Catholic or haven't made all their sacraments and want to make their sacraments and communion services. And then we have, uh, we do have a full-time staff chaplain, Father Lactran, uh, who goes in and does mass and confessions where he can. Wow. But, but we have about 140 services, 130 services a week. And most of those are, are for communion services. So we have to train our volunteers, our laity, to go in and provide these services because the, the schedule's all over the map. We can't just go in and then on Sunday everybody say, yeah, you all come and get together here and we're going to be a big happy family. So they have to segregate all these populations so we have all these services going on. So that's that's the basic uh, part of what we do when we go in. But we also have a couple of restorative justice programs that we do in there as well.
0: So you're also sending out into the jails and the prisons to bring these services as well, not just to the kids.
1: Correct. But let me clarify that we do not go into prisons because okay. Orange, in our diocese, there are no prisons. In right. fact, I think we might be the only diocese in the state that doesn't have prisons.
0: So you go into the jails. Correct. So these are people who are either sentenced there for shorter-term crimes or they're being held in detention while they are awaiting trials.
1: Yeah, most of it's transitional or they're, they've been sentenced and they're waiting to go to prison. Uh, there's been a lot of changes in legislation uh, over the the last few years, which we've been involved in that too. A lot of them now are staying longer in the county system, and that's that's changed a lot of things as well. But eventually, they are going to be released from here, or they will be sent to prison if their case is you know more serious.
0: So I had a a father-in-law who since passed away, who was involved in going to some of these jails with uh, uh, there's a team I guess that goes in. Mm-hmm. So you don't go alone. And he was talking about doing a Bible study, and then people would ask him questions. And he said he never had a bad time going there. He said he always enjoyed every time he was ever there. He always had people asking him questions. Correct. And these people were genuinely wanting to be a part. They weren't just, oh, yeah, I can get away for some free time going to to church service. Some of them, I'm sure, start that way. But for the most part, this really becomes an outreach of Jesus Christ's mercy to these people. What's been the experience for the people who volunteer for you? We've, we've got, you just named out a whole bunch of different uh, things that you get involved with. The people that volunteer, what do they say?
1: They say, uh, I think most of them have the idea when they go in, I'm going to go in to help somebody and give something and not realizing how much more they're going to get back from it. And we've had some volunteers uh, come out and come out in tears yeah. uh, from what their experience has been. It's um, it, it's one on one as raw as it can get. Um, You know, some of these people have never been to church that come to us because anybody and the adult side, especially anybody can come to our services when they do a call out. So we get people of all different faiths, Christian and non-Christian and people that are atheists. And sometimes just to be in that encounter with them for the first time or they've never held a Bible before or even opened up a Bible before is very, very, very profound. That's all. You know, I don't. It's hard to really even describe in words. You just come out of there, you know, just moved, and you want to go back.
0: (laughs) This sounds so exciting in a way from a ministry perspective. Regardless of where anyone might fit on the political spectrum and what they think about what these people did and how much uh, punitive needs to be put into their lives, whatever, when it comes down to it, we Christians are are interested in their souls. And their souls are tied to their bodies, are tied to their life experiences. What do you call a body that doesn't have its soul tied to it? It's, it's yeah. a corpse. Yeah. So we're meeting them where they are, and now they're in prison. All facades are are down for this moment because mm-hmm. they, they now get to have a ch- And for the first time, a lot of these people are being given the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you enough to come to you and wants to be one with you, even you you who might be feeling like you don't deserve something.
1: Oh, yeah, that's that's huge from the inmate's uh, perspective in there. Uh, some of them don't feel like they're worthy of being loved, forgiven. Just just uh, if I could share a quick story with you that was very moving to me as well as when I, when one of my volunteers uh, stopped by my office not too long ago and said I was in the women's jail doing a communion service, and I was talking, and they have to give a reflection on the readings, and she was talking about God's love, and one of the ladies Got pretty emotional and she said, Are you trying to tell me that God loves me? And the volunteer said, Yes, of course. And she said, How can you stand there and tell me that God could love this? And she points to herself. Yeah. And the volunteer said that she had to do everything she could to fight back the tears. Wow. Um, Because that's how oftentimes a lot of them, a lot of them feel. And when you don't feel loved and you don't, you don't feel like you, you belong or you're connected and you're isolated in such a way, It does affect you. It does affect the human person in a lot of different ways.
0: And when we come back, I want to transition to that. I want to talk a little bit about what it is that you're trying to accomplish in doing this ministry from a practical perspective. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Fred Lapuza, Director of the Diocese of Orange's Office of Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about not just what their programs are, but how they succeed for Christ. And we will be right back. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope in beautiful Garden Grove, California, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is Fred Lapusa who is the Director of Restorative Justice and Detention for the Diocese of Orange. And you had mentioned that you have hundreds of services going on. You must have several hundred volunteers involved in the ministry. Again, you're talking about ministries that go out to several different facilities, and they engage people who've either committed crimes or accused of committing crimes, or on the other side have had crimes committed on them, especially children who are no longer at home, who are out of their settings. What is it that your office sees as success in your ministry? What is it you're actually trying to do, and and how successful are you at doing it?
1: I guess I would be careful about how I would measure success. (laughs) You know, I mean, we have uh, some people get out of the system, they make it. We offer them resources to help them when they get out of the system. We offer uh, ongoing pastoral care, you know, at our, at our office or at some of the local parishes. Uh, a lot of our deacons our people that are in the diaconate program right now are in our program. It's part of their formation process. So there is some uh, at local parishes. But it's really hard to measure it quantitatively because we don't have a type of tracking system because we can't. Right. Um, part of that is for confidentiality, sure. especially with minors. So when these people get out of the system, they go about their way, and we don't know—we don't always know where right. they go. Most of the time, we don't know where they go unless they come back for for a resource or something.
0: So when you have uh, encounters with these people, you're—you're you're not. There's no way to really measure what kind of an impact you have, Correct. Other than the the anecdotes that you're telling, like the story that you just told at the last segment that we had. Of the woman who says, you mean God loves this? Yeah. Wow. How could
1: God love this?
0: How could God love this? And it's it's one of those things that you were saying before as well. When people don't feel love, they react in their lives, I I guess, with anger, a a sense of injustice. I should have been loved, and I wasn't. Now I'm mad at the world for not loving. What's going on here? And let me make sure I, I don't get too far afield. We're seeing a lot of anger erupting in our streets just this week. Mm-hmm. We're seeing huge amounts of, of pent-up anger. We had a horrible thing happen in Minneapolis. We had a and, – and just about everybody who's seen it in law enforcement agrees this was a horrible thing that happened. And they're going to charge the offending officer with at least a third-degree murder. They can always up that if they decide to do so. They are looking at the other people involved. Justice, from a punitive perspective, is, is turning on that side of it. But the eruptions that have taken place, both legitimate peaceful protests, but also apparently afterwards these these um, explosions, rioting, lawless behavior, seems to be so angry. Is that what happens when we don't have restorative justice? How do you see what we do tied to part of the solution? to what's going on right now in society. I, I
1: mean, I certainly see that as as, a, as, as definitely a, a part of it. I know, like, the people that we deal with in the system, It's again, it's hard to explain it in simple terms, but if I were to, I would say that these are needs not met when needs aren't met, whether it's not. I just find that love is a transformative vehicle. I mean, I've, I've seen it personally, uh, things we've done in the system, the retreat. We've had retreats in there with mm-hmm. juveniles. Some of the hardest, core, hardest people that we've ever seen had to work with uh, to just become in tears sometimes when they start all of a sudden having an experience of God or that experience of God's love and God's mercy. That's what transforms people. That's what, what changes people. And I've always said, you know, criminal behavior is a, is a symptom. And I, I'm not the only one that says this. I right. think anybody that, right. uh, you know, in, in social services that works in these areas would 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 admit that. Crime is a symptom of something that's much deeper and complex, something hurt, something broken, inside of that person, some, some way that they feel there's an injustice, even if it's, maybe it's not, it's a perceived injustice. Right. Um, and, and so they, they act out. So it's, you know, again, it's that it's a symptom of something else that's going on. That's going to cause them to act out. And when you have something that's a systemic issue, like that's the core of what's going on here, I think in our society right now, um, then it becomes this volcano that just keeps bubbling and bubbling. Have you ever heard that story? about the vol- the village and the volcano and the the villagers the village the volcano was starting to erupt so the villagers said we got to fix it and so all the men got together they went up and they put a big rock on top of the volcano to stop it from erupting and then they felt good for a while and then pretty soon the sides burst out and it it all flew out and yeah. and affected everybody yeah. I don't know if you ever heard that story I've
0: not heard it but that makes sense cuz yeah. i just made it up that's why okay um, so <laughs> but anyway that's how but yeah you put a rock at the top of a volcano you've solved the problem Temporarily, Correct, yeah. <laughs> and now it's going to be a bigger problem.
1: Yeah, and it, lo- it might look good from the outside. Yeah. And locking somebody up and dealing with them in a punitive way might look good from the outside. But uh, these restorative justice practices have worked for centuries. They're working today. They're becoming more common. They're using them in the public school system a lot. They're using them in other areas a lot, Yeah,
0: uh, prisons. One of the things that I learned when I was teaching, I used to be a principal and a teacher for a while. Uh, was, you can stop an action with a negative, but you can't change an action without a positive. Yeah. Exactly. Meaning, you can, you can use punitive and say, if you do this, you're gonna have this consequence, and if the consequence is significant enough, they won't do it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you've changed the behavior, that means you've stopped a behavior. To change a behavior means you've turned it into something positive, and the only way to do that is to show a positive alternative, a positive action. And as you're saying, the most positive action that's ever come into our world is Jesus Christ, who wills the good of everyone, and has said, I love you anyway. Yeah. You did. I still love you. I, don't, I wish I hadn't done that. But I still love you. Would you please stop doing that? Because it will make it easier for me to love you. Yeah. yeah, if you really want to get a sense of restorative
1: justice, especially from a yeah. biblical perspective, just read the New Testament.
0: Yeah.
1: That's what it's all about. Jesus restored people. Even when he found people laying in the street, or he found sinners, or whatever the person he came across, when you think about it, one of the main things he did is he restored them back to the community. Let like he was without sin, throw the first stone. Yeah. Okay? He restored this woman back into the community. The woman at the well restored her back to, he brought people back together, healed relationships. It's interesting what happens when people get together and they listen to one another. Uh, in a caring way, in a very in-depth way, what, comes, what can come out of that? And even for the people that are causing the harm, we had a guy in in, uh, prison that came to my office after he was arrested when he was 17. He came to my office. Now he's in his 50s. He got released after seven parole hearings. He murdered a a teenager in a gang fight when he was 16 years old. And um, he got out and he says, I I come here today because I want to interview you. I started a class. I want to take a job, uh, get a job as being a drug and alcohol counselor because I was really high on drugs when I killed this other gang kid. And I want to see that that never happens to anybody again. But our teacher told us to, to write a story, about a paper about something that changed their life. And I want to write about restorative justice. He said, when you guys came in and started talking to us and, uh, about the, how our harm causes harm to how many people are affected by the crime, uh, he says, I, my celly my and I walked out scratching our heads saying, gosh, we didn't realize we hurt so many people. Uh, Because, you know, all the people that are involved when a crime is committed, not only do you have the victim, you have the family. And you have the victim of the perpetrator, their families. You have the families on both sides. Uh, A lot of times these uh, family members that are being incarcerated are the primary caregivers or uh, supporters, financial supporters in the home. So now what's going to happen to those kids and those families? Then you have the police. You have the courts. You have the paramedics, first responders. uh, You have the community. The neighborhood, oftentimes you see on the news and said, We've never had anything like that happen in our neighborhood. Well, it affects the whole community. So, restorative justice tends to try to heal all that, bring anybody together that has been harmed by that relation, that broken relationship.
0: I'm noticing that you're not talking virtually at all about the actual criminal justice adjudications of it all. You're not getting into whether they. Deserve their sentence, don't deserve their sentence. That, that has nothing really directly to do with this, does it?
1: That's correct, because restorative justice is not about reducing somebody's sentences. It's about, again, it's about healing the brokenness. It focuses on the relationships broken, yeah. not the law broken. People are still held accountable for restorative justice. They're still going to have to face whatever it is that they're going to be charged or they're sentencing or whatever that entails. So it's, it's not about getting somebody off the hook. It's yeah. just helping to get them to realize the harm that's been caused and what they can do to try to fix that and, and make those changes and have the support to do it. We can't just throw them out there without giving them some kind of support. And then what we have is we don't have this re-victimization that right. keeps happening, right. this revolving door where they get out of the system, they don't know how to function, they have no support, and then they just go out and go back to what they know. Yeah. And most of this is really survival. This is how they've grown up or learned how to survive somehow. And they're just going to go right back to what they know, the most. So if we can, if we can interrupt that and get, and show them a better a better path, and give them some hope, of, for that kind of a fu- of a future without crime, yeah. then it's a win-win for everybody.
0: There's a statement in the Old Testament, um, I believe in Exodus, talking about those who who love me, I will love them, and those who hate me, I will visit their the uh, to the third and fourth generations. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, that sounds ominous that God's going to punish us until someone explained to me, God never says he's going to punish you. No. This has to do with people punishing themselves by, by continuing the patterns. If you've got someone who's been abused, we see this in, in, in abuse too. That just the, the Someone who's been abused, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse, if they don't have help and it was significant enough to cause a problem for this person they often will abuse in their life in similar ways. And then the pattern repeats. Mm -hmm. That person has been abused. If they've been hurt and it's significant, if they don't get help, they will then take, you either get help and heal or you pass it on. Mm -hmm. And somehow I think we feel like that's gonna be a panacea and it's not. It's just a way of passing on the hurt and the anger. And restorative justice is about trying to stop that pattern Regardless of what the sentence is, regardless of what the crime was, every human being is in the image and likeness of God. And you can mar that up all you want to. You can't destroy that image and likeness of God inside of you. Correct. God made it immutable in the end. Now, if he can say you're beautiful, even if you've done something awful, who are we to say that you're not? And, in fact, how can we help you out of the situation you're in? That's kind of the attitude, isn't it?
1: That's, that's correct. That's correct. And if we can do that... Again, then maybe we can prevent crimes and we can and it, to prevent them from, again, re, re, committing crimes and also the recidivism where they end up back into the system again, just like that revolving door. And it, it, and then they're basically they're re-traumatized. Yeah. And the medical science out there is even showing that their brain structure has actually changed from this trauma that they may have experienced growing up. I mean, even if a kid sees his parent being abused by another parent. Yeah. Uh, it affects the development of their brain. Absolutely. Even though they weren't the ones being abused, it right. did affect them some way. And that is liable to come out in some kind of unhealthy behavior later on, sometimes later on, even in a, through adulthood.
0: And it's either going to come out negatively again on somebody else, Correct. or perhaps with the help of God, it might become a motivating factor for a positive Absolutely. outcome. Even people who might come from the wrong side of the track or a poor neighborhood, say in the Midwest, might grow up someday to do ministry, mm-hmm. which... We're going to talk a little bit more about personally when we come back, because we were talking before the show a little bit. You've got a background that isn't criminal, thank thank God, but is involved with. Um, well, you came from a, a poor background too, and how that may have motivated you and what's gone on in your life. When we come back, I want to switch a little bit and talk about how restorative justice has affected you, Fred. Mm-hmm. And we're talking with Fred LaPusa, who is the Director of Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry for the Diocese of Orange. And when we come back, we're going to talk about him, about how this ministry has impacted his life. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today has been Fred Lapuza, who is the Director of Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry for the Diocese of Orange. And we were just talking during the break about how this ministry may have started as a jail ministry, to reach out to those who've been in prison, just like what Jesus said we should be doing, but that you also do all sorts of outreach. You talk to the people in the pews, you talk to the people at the parishes, Mm -hmm. you talk to the people... We're out there. You do this. You you talk to us on the radio. This ministry has clearly enveloped your whole life. So let's go back. How has this ministry affected you? What's your background, and how did you fit into this ministry? Let's kind of start there. Well, I grew up, I went
1: to a Catholic school all my life, and um, after I got into high school, ended up in a public high school, my As a teenager, my life changed, like uh, so many other
0: teenagers. So you, you grew up in a in a posh neighborhood somewhere near Beverly Hills.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Actually, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, about in the center of the U.S. It was on the south side, close to the downtown section of Omaha. And uh, it was a poor-to-middle-class neighborhood at the time.
0: So there's some rough-and-tumble in the neighborhood.
1: There was some rough-and-tumble, you bet. Yeah, street corners, people hanging out. You know, drug violence, things like that, activity. So I, I kind of grew up around this stuff. And, um, I stopped going to church for quite a while and, uh, then about 10 years. And then I decided uh, I wanted to, ch- some changes in my life. And I can't even tell you by the grace of God. I don't know. Maybe my parents or people were praying for me or something, but I went through this big, uh, what I call the Paulian experience where I got knocked down and said, Hey, I need to do something here. I want, I want a different life. And that doesn't always happen to a lot of the people that we work with that don't get there.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I'm very fortunate, and I'm very grateful. And That, that
0: was kind enough to knock you on your butt. <laughs> exa- yeah.
1: And again, I don't I don't know exactly why, but maybe I do. I mean, that, I'm out here now. Yeah. I made my way west, and um, that experience to me was so profound. I found myself in church every day on my knees praying, Like, and I just decided I needed to do something. I had to do more than just the prayer. I had to get out there and put that prayer into action somehow. So um I discovered the community of the missionary servants of the Most Holy Trinity, who had a house of studies here in Santa Ana at the time. So
0: the Fathers of the Trinity, or what are they known the as? The
1: Trinitarians. Trinitarians. It's a okay. shorter name for them. Right. And um, they were involved in, uh, one of their charisms is reaching out to the most poor and abandoned, but not overseas necessarily, within our own backyards. Oh, wow, okay. And they were involved in detention ministry, Monthly sure. Tijuana trips down in the barrios of Tijuana. And, um, so I started, I got involved in the jail ministry. I thought, I felt like, boy, I worked with homeless. I worked in convalescent. I did a lot of different ministries, but when I hit there, it, that, that just really, it, it caught me. It caught my heart. I remember the first day I stood in front of juvenile hall and said, man, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to give them God and I'm going to let the kids know how God changed me and, and they can change them. And when I got in there, I found out that God had beaten me to it. Yeah. And, He was already in there, (laughs) Uh, and he was actually in the hearts of every one of those kids that I came in contact with, even the hardest core gang members. They just didn't know it, didn't realize it, and that became my challenge. How do I help them to understand that, as you mentioned earlier, that they are created in the image? That's their image. Their image is not gang members. Their image is not violence. It doesn't define who they are. And we hear that term a lot. They may have put a lot really of war doesn't.
0: paint on, but it's only covering the image. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's became my challenge and our challenge. So, and so from there, it just, you know, 16 years volunteering. And then uh, the diocese finally decided to hire me. <laughs> well, the director <laughs> at the, at the uh, detention ministry office at that time, uh, offered me a position. And, um, I'd actually been doing a youth ministry position for seven years before that at, at St. Joachim's, my home oh, okay. parish yeah. now in Costa Mesa. And, uh, I got the, uh, when I got that offer, I said, this is this is it. I, this is where I need to go. So that was in 2003. And then in 2014, I believe it was, I took over the director okay.
0: position. So you've been involved in this ministry pretty much your whole adult life. Well. A lot. About
1: a lot. A good part of it, yes.
0: And this has, it sounds like it has totally enveloped who you are. Yes. Is there any part of this that uh, still surprises you? You've been doing this for quite some time. I mean, you mentioned when you first walked into the juvenile hall, it was a little surprising to find out God had already put the love of God in their hearts. They just didn't know it yet. And the image of God was in their heart. What surprises you today in your ministry?
1: Boy, uh, that's a good question. You know, the, the as far as the people we deal with, it seems like, you know, human behavior has, has a, a pattern. It just kind of keeps repeating itself. So you kind of see that part. Just how we re- respond to it. I'm just always open to finding ways that we can reach people. Uh, but I think in order to do that, we have to let them reach us. Uh, we have to be open to, for them, yeah. uh, for accepting them kind of as they are and where they are. I don't know. Sometimes maybe surprises can come out of that. Uh, I think the biggest surprise is anything is just more the realization of our own, of ourself, you know, of, of how, how we're growing in this faith and how it's, it's really challenging us to grow, how we see God in these folks. And how we can come together, not, not as I'm coming in, I'm the teacher, I'm the, I'm the instructor, but you teach me, you teach me. And I have to be open to that, you know, every time I go in there. And I also have to be open to every time I go in there to say, did I, was I able to offer any hope? Because that's really a motivating factor. Most of these folks don't have hope. And how do I bring that hope? How can I be that living sign and symbol of hope to them? And uh, so I have to critique myself when I do that. But um, and I don't know if that really answers your question about surprises. But um, I guess to me the the surprise is that I don't stop growing, yeah. and I don't stop learning, and I don't uh, stop trying to be to be better.
0: What do you think surprises most the people who begin volunteering? I mean, I would assume people start this ministry with preconceived ideas, much like you did. Correct. And they're coming into it. As you said, they're hoping to bring the love of God to a situation where God is already there. I had someone explain to me that ministry has very little to do with what you're doing. Hmm. Your job is to bring the equipment. God is the Mm -hmm. one who's going to mix it all together. Exactly. You're just one of the ingredients. (laughs) To have that as kind of a humbling way of looking at it, kind of deflating your your ego balloon just a little bit. Very much. Uh, is, it changes the, a lot of people who are in ministry and they begin to realize that, that it's God who's the magician here working all this and he's using you as just one of the components to this. Sure, you're bringing a necessary component, but he's already, as you put it, he's already got the image of God and the people around them. Yeah. You're, maybe all you, they need is to have a little bit of soap and water to wash it up a little bit. And that has very little to do with you. <laughs> so I guess I go back to, do, do people who get involved with this ministry, or do they, you have a lot of repeat customers. Do you have a lot of people that get into this and stay? And if so, what are they telling you?
1: Yes, we uh, we retain most of the people that come into us for a long time. We've had people. We have people in this ministry, I think, that are going on their thirty year mark, twenty five year mark. Uh, some of the deacons even that came in in their formation. There's they do their time and then yeah. they can leave. Right. We still have some of them after more than twenty years. It does. It does have a way of, um, you know, of, of keeping you there. But yes, that that's uh, one of the things I. When we do our trainings with the volunteers, one of the things we, we keep repeating and pushing is presence. Just be present, that that's the greatest gift we have to offer. I think you just yeah. said it in different words. Uh, don't don't go in there with an agenda. Don't go in there with this idea that i got to give them something, otherwise I don't think I'm doing anything. And I, I've seen volunteers leave because that was a difficult concept for them to understand, sure. a different understanding of, of their role or spirituality, to realize that I'm as much the student as I am the teacher when I go in there and uh, that is humbling. I think it's also very liberating because it tells me I don't have to go in there and change anybody. First of all, I can't. Most of these people have been formed over years or decades and now I'm not going to go in there in one hour and and change it. Now that's not to say that sometimes they don't have an experience and change com- does come out of that. Right,
0: but you might not ever see it.
1: You might not. Now over the years I've been doing this, I've had the grace of God uh, to, Run into people on the outs that have went through, and I remember one that struck me most. And I know my volunteers have probably heard this story a lot of times. But when I was doing youth ministry, and as I was volunteering at the still going into juvenile hall, we went to uh, a parish to do a big inner uh, parish youth event, and so kids were there from all a lot of different parishes. And um, I remember I was kind of in a discouraging place at that time, and I was just questioning, "Am I making a difference? You know, maybe like some of the things we're just talking about. I got to do something, you know." And um I was really preoccupied that day. I really wasn't didn't have my head or heart into what I was doing with all the kids I had for my parish there that day. And we're getting ready for mass. We just got through half of the day and I get a tap on the shoulder. I turn around. There's a young man standing there. I turn around and I, okay, he goes, "Can I talk to you?" And, I'm, and I and it's pretty chaotic. You know, you got sure. hundreds of kids in there trying to get in the seats and I first thing that kind of went through my head is, "Well, I it looks like he has something on his heart or his mind. He, what is, where's where's the youth minister? What is he?" Yeah. And uh why doesn't he talk to him? And I didn't act on that. I just got up and I just said, how can I help you? And he said, I know you don't know me. He goes, but the first time I saw you was in Juvenile Hall. You came and did a communion service. He goes, now, I don't remember what you said, but all I remember is whatever happened to me that day, it really changed my heart. And when I got out, I decided I'm going to change my life. And, well, I'm part of Holy Family Cathedrals. Youth, he pointed there across the aisle. He was Holy Family Cathedrals Youth Group, oh, wow. and, which the youth minister and I are good friends and everything. And he goes, but what I really wanted to say to you, and he put his arms out to embrace me, he says, thank you for all you've done for me. And I lost it. Yeah. I just, you know, one of those human things, yeah. you know, you get in that moment. Um, yeah. And he was crying, too. He was weeping as well. Yeah. And in uh, all this chaos around us, I, I just kind of sat down and talk about humbling. Yeah. I just thought, boy, I had no idea.
0: Yeah.
1: I had no idea that, and like you said, it was God using me. I don't really have to know, you know. I mean, it, by again, it was a graceful moment, a very sacred moment, and I'm, I'm happy for that, and I can share that with people, I think. But I don't really have, I, and that's what came to me out of that, the message that came. It's like, Fred, just do what you're doing. Let me take care of that part of it. Yeah. You know, stop, because when we stop trying to be God, then God can be God, and I don't have to try to be God anymore, and I can get out of God's way.
0: (laughs) Which I think is very important. And you're telling a story that's also, I think, quite uplifting for people who perhaps approach this subject with a little bit of reticence. Because, again, a lot of us uh, who were brought up in the United States, uh, oh, I'm an old man myself. So when I was young, we were brought up kind of, um, you toe the line, you do the thing, and anybody who commits a crime is is a degenerate. And they deserve what they get and they need to have. And there's a certain sense to which the, the criminal justice system is there to, to reform them and to, to punish them, and then they'll stop. And what we found over time is, well, it doesn't usually work that way. But regardless of whether or not there's a component of the criminal justice system that works that way or doesn't work that way, what you described was a success story that had to do with the restorative justice ministry. That had invaded his life in prison, and in away from everything else, where you wouldn't expect to find a, a ministry reaching out to them there in juvenile hall, and the seed that was planted grew without you even realizing it. This is now years later that he comes back to you, and he, you were fortunate or blessed enough to have God show you this. Uh, Paul talks about this in First Corinthians, where he says, "One person will sow, another will water, and another one will reap." you don't know what role you're playing in that yeah. and but yet you are and people who are doing this they're doing real reform regardless of whether or not the other stuff works our call as ministers of Jesus Christ is to show them the way of love because that's the path that we know reforms correct
1: and i think going back to what something you said what was interesting when the when the boy said i don't remember what you said but what do you, they remember is that I was there,
0: you said something out of love,
1: yeah, something that was said, but it was the fact that i 'm there, and I think this is the power that our volunteers have uh, that we try to communicate to them that you that you're going there every we're there every day in the jails and every week in the juvenile for more than once a week, so we 're always there, and we're just present with them, and that's what they that's what they know that 's what they really experience
0: we're talking to Fred Lapusa, who is the director of restorative justice detention ministry for the Diocese of Orange. When we come back, I want to talk about our current situation. We've had a lot of disruption in our society the last week, and it's going to have a ripple effect for quite some time in many lives, in many ways that people I don't think are even thinking about just yet, but I'm sure you have. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit about that and perhaps a little bit about how we can all be involved in this. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio, and we will be right back. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Fred LaPusa, who is the Director for Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry for the Diocese of Orange. Thank you for coming in and talking with us. This is a quite a time. We're going to talk a bit more about what that means, but I want to thank you, Fred, both for your long-term ministry, which has clearly changed your life in many ways, but for how it's changing so many others, and for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: Now, your justice ministry uh, is involved with a number of different people. If people are interested in getting involved with this, how would they find out how to volunteer?
1: Uh, The best thing would be to go to our website, uh, www.rcbo.org, slash restore. Uh, And the RCBO is like Roman Catholic Bishop Orange, so www.rcbo.org backslash restore and that takes you to our website and there's a link on there that says how to become a volunteer and uh, there's stuff about our ministry on there as well you can click on that uh, we have overview presentations that we do uh, every two months and you can come and listen to the presentation and ask questions and then it progress explain the step-by-step process to becoming a volunteer
0: now for people who get involved in this i i take it there's some sort of training that they need to go through before they're taken to a facility but that's not the only thing they can do as well. It's not just about going into Juvenile Hall. There's other things that they can do to volunteer. I know, for example, there's an article I just saw not that long ago on OC Catholic about your organization being a conduit to get uh, masks to jail ministries. What was that about?
1: Uh, we had uh, some mask donations that came in through our uh, staff chaplain, Father Locke, and I contacted uh, the uh, facilities that we work with and asked if they needed the mask. And, of course, they did, and uh, we're very happy to get them. So I uh, took them over to the sheriff's department, um, social services for the kids that are in foster care in the different facilities, Santa Ana City Jail, and uh, probation department that manages Juvenile Hall.
0: So even mask sewing is something that could be done to help with what you do. But they do have a training program for people who want to continue and do actual jail work yeah most
1: of our people that come in, come to us will go inside of the facilities and do ministry we have some people sometimes that will maybe help out with some office work i c- can always use that <laughs> you know little things like that and then some of the partners that people that we partner with uh maybe people are more into doing outreach of working with people that get out of the system and we can refer them to those organizations if they are interested in doing something uh, outside of the walls
0: Now, this week has had huge numbers of people involved in protests, most of whom are engaged in peaceful protests, but there's been quite a bit of criminality. And after the first couple of days, the police began arresting people in large numbers and kind of cracking down Mm -hmm. on the people who have uh, crossed the line, not just staying out to them, but actually creating problems and burglarizing and doing terrible things. How is this going to impact their lives. How is it going to impact the lives of those around them? And then I'm going to ask the follow-up question of what can and should we do about it?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it is going to impact their lives. Obviously, if they didn't have a criminal record before, they're going to now. And as I understand, just at least from the uh, reports we got through the news media, uh, some of these are felony offenses. Uh, This is going to make it very difficult for these people to get jobs. I did notice I've been really watching close uh, on the the sources of media that are out there, it's uh, seeing that uh, it seems like the biggest percentage of these people are young people. It looks like yeah. mostly college age, maybe even high school age. And, uh, you know, if any of them are on scholarships, it's going to affect scholarships. Uh, if they're on maybe sports teams or something like that, it could affect that. It's going to have a huge ripple effect. And, of course, their families, and it's going to ripple into their families and their communities. If any of them are part of a church or uh, anything, it's going to be pretty dramatic, I think.
0: I I had a friend of mine. I I have a friend of mine whose daughter had been in a nursing program, and she had a DWI, and she was dropped from the nursing program because, as part of her nursing program, she had to have a clean record on a couple of different things, and DWI was one of the things you couldn't have to be licensed as as a nurse. People don't think about that when they're out partying or when they're out, in this case, uh, involved in riotous activity. We've got a a lot of reasons why the initial protests were justified. But the criminal activity that's followed is going to not only hurt the communities, which part of restorative justice is trying to reach out to the communities that have been hurt, but it's also going to hurt the families that are affected, not just the families who are victims of crime, but the families of people who go in. I mean, if these are mostly people who are not well off, they're gonna to have to either become get a lawyer or they're gonna to have to become part of the system. The the financial loss on this is gonna mount up for a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. It's gonna traumatize them, their parents, their siblings. There's a whole bunch of ripple effects that take place when that's gonna affect a large number of people in our society just from a, a practical perspective. But we've also got a lot of trauma going on here. How do you think What's going to be the lasting effects of these kinds of riots? Because these have been throughout the country now. They're not just in one city.
1: I think you kind of summed it up right there in what you just said. Uh, you know, obviously the economic, the fact that some people who had jobs won't have them anymore, uh, don't have them anymore already, it's it's just going to affect all of society. I, I don't know. I think you just really summed it up. I mean, everything we've seen out there is there has been said. We've heard our politicians speak. We've heard our police chief speak and everybody, if you've
0: been watching the news media. So what's your office doing to prepare for what's going to come from this? Because this will eventually pass as a news item, but you're going to have the pieces to pick up. We've got a lot of things that have happened in Orange County. What are you looking at?
1: Well, right now, obviously, we just keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a tough spot ourselves. Um, our, our staff, all of our staff are furloughed. Um, except um, our, our staff chaplain, Father Locke. Even if we did have staff, um, I would probably be reaching out to our partners uh, that we work with, uh, like Project Kinship. Uh, they do restorative justice healing circles there. Uh, they have people that have been formally incarcerated, uh, 80% of their staff. They can work with these folks as well if there's any way we can get them connected. And also working with the law enforcement, sheriff's department, we always offer our services if there's anything that we can do. I was happy to see on there some restorative justice practicing happening, where some of the police, one police officer of uh, chief, I think, in one of the cities, was marching with the demonstrators, the I peaceful. Saw that peaceful he said, demonstrators. What do you want? Walk with us. Yeah, so took
0: and walked with them. Yep,
1: he was accompanying them. He was listening to them. Yeah. That's restorative justice, or at least how it starts. And so I think for a lot of these people that have committed these crimes, if 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 it was possible to get them in a restorative justice type of a circle setting and help them to maybe realize what they've done. I I think some of what I saw out there looks like, you know, uh, young people that just, their minds, you know, don't think right. Uh, They get caught up in the action. Uh, Some of what we we hear from law enforcement was maybe organized criminal rings that were doing this and some of the inciting that was going on. I would also include that there's probably some drug and alcohol involved in here. I know some of the liquor stores I heard were here. I
0: I, I know that (laughs) you had your choice there. You got to go get Rolex watches or or liquor. They chose the liquor.
1: And then once that happens, of course, then there goes the rationale, you know, with our young folks. And uh, I'm very, very saddened because I know these young people could have a better better way of living and, and things are really going to affect them.
0: That means that our parishes are going to need to be better educated. So there needs to have outreach. And that means you need more volunteers. So, again, if there are people that are interested in volunteering for, for finding out, just to find out information about what they might be able to do, they would go to rcbo backslash restore. Yeah,
1: www.rcbo.org backslash restore. Or even if you go on the diocesan website, you'll find us under restorative justice. You know, part of our role too is to educate our communities, we do advocacy work. We, we go when we're, when we're invited yeah. to go to parishes to speak.
0: So if you're listening, invite them. Yeah. They'll, they'll come in and talk. We're running out of time, Fred. I want to thank you so very, very much for coming in and talking to us about this. This is a critical time. And with all these people that are, without even probably realizing it, traumatized, there's going to be a, a, an increased need for your ministry. So thank mm-hmm. you very much for taking time to come in here. Would you please lead us in a word of prayer for all of us in the Southland and throughout the United
1: States. Sure. And then I just quickly want to say I also am thankful to um, our bishop. Uh, This is is his office that he has, and we're grateful for his support in all of our bishops here. Uh, Also the bishops in the state conference and the national conference, PSA, Pastoral Services Appeal, who funds our ministry. Whenever our parishioners are giving to that, it comes to our ministry that is helping to, to change lives and affect lives. So we're grateful for the PSA and all the people who give to it as well.
0: We have a very supportive bishop. This is his program. Uh, Orange County Catholic Radio is uh, is the diocesan program, and the reason why you're here is because Bishop Van wants to reach out through his ministers like you, Fred. Right. Thank you for coming in.
1: We're here to support parishes, and we're thankful for our volunteers that um, because they're the core of this ministry um, for the work that they do as well. They are. So we ask for the Lord's blessing in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As we go forward or attempt to go forward now, we ask again that the Holy Spirit bless uh, us, bless our work, give us guidance on how to respond to this, Uh, give us the resources that we need, send to us um, all those who will help continue to support us, keep us strong in spirit and in heart, and help us to uh, not get discouraged. Uh, I want to pray for all those who are in our correction system, for our victims out there that live with the scars of crime and violence. Um, for the healing that needs to be done in our communities, for everybody, for our law enforcement, our first responders, for all all their families, uh, and all those who um, are suffering in any way from this, which is really the whole community. Uh, So we ask you, God, to just be our strength this day. In Jesus' holy name we pray.
0: Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Orange County Catholic Radio, and with me today has been Fred LaPusa, who is the Director of Restorative Justice and Detention Ministry for the Diocese of Orange. And if you would like to either hear this again or share this with someone else, you can go to OCCatholic.com and go to the radio tab, and you will find a number of different radio programs that we produce there, including this one, our flagship show, Orange County Catholic Radio. And you can download any of the podcasts by simply clicking on it. And I thank all of you for listening and we'll see you again next week.